If you like Area 45, you're going to enjoy the Hoover Institution's other podcasts, Uncommon Knowledge, The Classicist with Victor Davis Hanson, and The Libertarian with Richard Epstein. Subscribe now to the Hoover Podcast at hoover.org slash podcasts. That's hoover.org slash podcasts. Hoover Podcast, ideas defining a free society. Hello, it's Monday, November the 4th, and you're listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast examining the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. I'm Bill Whelan, the Hoover Institution's Virginia Hobbs Carpenter Fellow. Joining me today in a recording studio here in the campus of Stanford University is John Batchelor, about my very distinguished guest. On, st- on September the 12th, 2001, the day after the fall of the Twin Towers in Lower Manhattan, WABC AM in New York City recruited John Batchelor to go on the air until Osama bin Laden was either killed or captured. John's been broadcasting ever since, offering insightful commentary on the war on terrorism, the presidency and politics, national and global economies, and defending our civilization. In March 2003, just before the Iraq invasion, ABC Radio Networks invited John to syndicate his show. Since then, John has built a nationwide and international following. John Batchelor is a longtime friend of the Hoover Institution. Several of we fellows are regulars on his show. John and I typically connect on Tuesdays to talk politics and California. My friend John Batchelor is what you might call a renaissance man, a veteran novelist, author of political romances, as well as a short history of the Republican Party that he penned a few years ago. Ain't you glad a Republican? I think that's the title of it, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bill. It's a pleasure to sit with you. We we talk coast to coast, and now we're talking California. We do. I'm reminded of the words of Joe Biden at the 2012 Democratic National Convention. Bin Laden is dead, and General Motors is alive. Bin Laden is still dead, and you're still broadcasting. And General Motors is mostly doing well, mostly doing well, bumpy now and again. The world has changed a deal since 2001. Did you think in 2001 that you'd still be doing this almost 20 years later? I have no ability to project 20 years into the future. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm very happy to be here. As with most things, it's one foot after another. Mm-hmm. And I did not anticipate that I would become a broadcaster. I was a novelist when I sat down on 9-12-2001. Mm-hmm. And I s- sort of hoped that I could continue to be a novelist. What I discovered is that what we do, Bill, talking, is the same as writing. It's part, same part of the brain. Mm-hmm. And if your day is spent creating characters and imagining futures or pasts and uh, recording dialogue that you think moves the story, that very much fights what you do at night when you're reporting the news. We do hard news, and that's the most impossible thing to make up on the planet. No one would believe hard news in a script pitch. No one. So here we are. I gave up novel writing because it cannot compete with what happens next in our world. Uh, The show every day is three hours, right? Uh, Four hours. Four hours. Four hours. I devote the fourth hour to authors when I can, unless the news just spills over. Mm -hmm. And I start at 9 p.m. East Coast time, which Mm -hmm. is 6 p.m. Pacific time. And by that part of the day, I begin to be able to see into the European headlines. I can certainly see into the East Asian headlines. And I know where the story is moving. The show transformed itself after the initial shock of the attacks into a global news report. Mm -hmm. And therefore, clock management is a great deal of what I do. Uh, China's easy. Japan's easy because it's a 12, Australia's easy, 12 to 14 hour clock. Europe is a challenge. And particularly difficult is the Middle East, where the fighting has been these last 16 years. Mm -hmm. All right. So let's walk through how you managed to fill four hours. Sure. Five 
days a week. Sure. What time do you get up on the East Coast? Actually, unless you're on the West Coast right now, so what time do you get up this morning? Uh, I was up awake very early. It's very easy early. when you're jet lagged. It's right. very easy to go. Okay. Oh East gosh, Coast. it's 4 a.m. New York is already ahead of me. Let's go. All right. So, what hour do you arise on the East Coast? Uh, I'm always up before 9 p.m. East Co- 9 a.m. East, East Coast, Coast time. Yes. All right. And then once you've caffeinated, fueled for the morning, where do you start? The invitations begin. Where do you start looking for news? Uh, The show has a theme. Mm -hmm. Each day is a various variation of the theme. In other words, it's all hard news lead. On the first day, it's the politics of the weekend because, as you know, in the political news cycle out of Washington, Mm -hmm. the big story is established Sunday night into Monday morning. Right. If there are any surprises, probably Tuesday morning, but that's as late in the week as anybody wants to go with a major theme. Mm-hmm. So Monday, I devote myself to the weekend and the major stories. I begin with war fighting, always. Mm-hmm. The foundation for the defense of democracies. Two senior fellows, Bill Rogio and Tom Jocelyn, have been with me for umpteen years. And they cover the battlefront from the Hindu Kush to the Mediterranean. That has changed profoundly over the years. It, right now, it looks like it's a story about Syria, but we started in Afghanistan. We moved to Iraq. No, no predicting where it goes next. I know we have armed confrontation right now in the north of Israel with the Iranians having commissioned and deployed very effective cruise missiles, exactly the same that hit the Saudi oil field several weeks back. These cruise missiles come within, you know, 100 feet of their target. Right. So I'm watching very carefully the Golan and Bakah, very carefully. Every, on Monday night, I check in with that. I also watch East Asia on Monday night, because this is the hard news as Washington sees it, mm-hmm. and that would be trade. Right. Although Hong Kong has now crowded into the trade story because of the inability of the Beijing government to answer the, the uh, entreaties of 7 million people in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Then we go to the political partisan game playing, um, my correspondents, uh, David Drucker of the Washington Examiner, John Fund of the National Review Online, Thaddeus McCotter, a uh, recovering politician from Michigan, right. we work with what appears to be the, the momentary, trendy, fun topic of the day. That would be Ukraine Gate now. It was Russiagate for a long time, and then during the election cycle, there will always be Joe Biden to kick around. It's that kind of th- fun. At 10.30, I turn my attention completely to the Middle East. There's invariably trouble, and right now there's election trouble in Israel. Right. And unknowns, entirely unknowns, in Damascus and with uh, to do with the Kurds of the Northeast. So there's a great deal of material. At 11 o'clock, uh, that's when I can go to features mm-hmm. for the rest of the show. So as you see, Bill, it fills up very quickly. Uh, most the the running joke in studio is uh, we need that five hour show. Uh, you were not on the air when uh, the last time Washington went through an impeachment ordeal. That would have been 1998 and 1999. You don't come along until the fall of 2001. How are you approaching impeachment? Historically, uh, the precedents here are critical to understand the present. Uh, what I'm speaking to are the same correspondence I've had through Russiagate. It's mm-hmm. surprisingly similar storytelling. Same opponents, same uh, gambits, uh, same information, same lack of information. So impeachment for me is um, 
Bill, the only mistake I make in my job is not to be cynical enough. That's the only mistake, all right? So I always remind myself when we go for the impeachment story, and I remind everybody around me, mm -hmm. you can't make this up. Heaven can wait. I love this. That's what I think. Because what you have is 400, 500 members of Congress pointing fingers, following scripts, uh, deploying themselves on steps to in front of the microphone, making uh, threats or entreaties to the White House, similar conduct by the executive branch. It's heaven. It's, it's all moving parts at once. Plus, I've discovered over these last years with Donald Trump in the White House, you cannot discuss at a Pratt or a Starbucks. You cannot discuss Washington business. You can't do it out loud because people listen in and their faces turn either dark or happy, depending on which side they're on. This is the thing about Trump that people don't appreciate. I travel around America a fair amount. No matter where you go, everyone seems to have an opinion of this mm -hmm. president, what's going on in Washington. And you're absolutely right, John. Just don't say anything. When people ask me what I do for a living, I do my best just to keep it away from Trump as well. But I look at politics. I study political trends. I study campaigns. I don't want to get into Trump because everyone has a ready opinion. Yes, ready opinion, and uh, they're, pr they're pleased to tell you what it is, yes. and that's okay. That's engagement. But lordy, 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 I mean, I don't want to be I don't want to embarrass anybody. I'm full of information that is either contradictory or empty. And what I get from the public is the headlines. Of course, you get the headlines, and depending on what cable television show they watch, you get what is called narrow casting. Mm -hmm. And that's welcome. That's part of public opinion. Right. But it, it's just not friendly. So what I do when in public, and people ask me what I do, I say I read books. Mm -hmm. that, 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 that doesn't make anybody unhappy. Do you consider yourself part of talk radio? <clears throat> that's it. That's, a, that's something I've waited 19 years to answer, and I'm going to wait another 19 years. What I do is I do the hard news, and I do the hard news with correspondence. Mm -hmm. Talk radio's protocol, the successful protocol of the last 30 years, is to take phone calls from the listeners right. and comment. Uh, and the voice, is, the voice, the commentator, the host... Uh, invariably presents him or herself, mostly himself, as an expert or a rhetorician with the answers. That, that is something I do not have skill set. That's not my skill set. Right. I'd much prefer to ask the questions knowing that uh, uh, I vaguely know what the answer is going to be, but I'm always eager to hear somebody who's already opined, which is why the Hoover Institution has been such a happy home for me these many years. Mm -hmm. Your policy papers give me a script before we talk. When you and I, Bill, when we talk, I look very carefully at your reporting on California, very carefully at your metaphors for Washington. Therefore, we both know where we're going. It's still great fun. And because you wrote this some days before, there's a, there's a moment for us to turn the news a little bit, depending on events. That's the challenge of writing in the age of Trump. It's writing something that will stay fresh three days later. I was in Washington, not recently, John, doing podcast, and I learned a very rough lesson. If you do a podcast related to Donald Trump and you let it sit more than three or four days, things change. Oh, last, yes. Last time I was oh, in yes. Washington doing podcast, John, I was right before impeachment started to break. So yeah, I just want to go back and erase every podcast and start over again with the breaking news. So there's kind of a fast news cycle here. What is good radio, John? Good radio would be, uh, and I've already over, gone over it, you ask a good question that doesn't have an answer. That's good radio. Uh, you put out there something we all ponder with and does not have a partisan version. Mm 
what would that look like? I think it very much looks like, and I'll break from politics because I cover space engineering and space exploration. The search for evidence of life or fossil life on Mars, mm -hmm. that's good radio. Mm -hmm. There's a, a NASA probe right now on the surface of Mars called InSight. Mm -hmm. InSight's job is not to ro move around. InSight's job is to sit in one place and put a drill into the Martian soil. Mm -hmm. And it has the ability to uh, analyze that soil, chemically analyze it, and come up with answers about what could have lived here, what might, what this environment is. What they found in putting the drill in is that Martian soil, which is also very, the gravity is one-sixth of Earth, Martian soil does not behave as Earth soil, <laughs> driving, a, driving a, uh, um, uh, a spike into it or a probe into it. Uh, has difficulty, and they've tried to adjust to it. But at one point last week, they drove the probe in so much by holding the arm up against it, creating friction, because there's not much friction in Martian soil. Suddenly, the probe was ejected by the planet. Mm -hmm. it, came, it came jumping out in, in photographs, still photographs that you put all together. It very much looks like Mars is spitting it back out again. No one can explain that. That is wonderful. Speaking of drilling, I apologize to our listeners. There is construction going on here at the Hoover Institution as we're doing this broadcast, and so that pounding and that drilling air in the background, that's not Mars. It's some sort of... No, but it happens on live radio all the time. You'd be amazed, Bill, how many times I've known that there was construction going on in the great big building where I work in Manhattan, you know, Two Penn Plaza. We There's here. always somebody coming in, and they want their building, they want their space redone. Right. Well, guess when they choose to do it after hours. Exactly. We were joking about this uh, before we went on the air. You and I were broadcasting live one time, and my dog decided to start barking inside. And my dog would do this a lot on broadcast, and people started asking about my dog. But um, tell me about breaking news when you've been on the air before. Is the story just broken wide open when you've been broadcasting? And if so, how did you adjust? To it? Sure. Uh, the incident that comes to mind is 2010, I believe. The dates all fade together. Beg pardon. 2010, I was on the air, and we got news in from the Middle East that the IDF, the Special Forces, had launched an operation against what was seen to be a Gaza blockade br uh, runner, a ship sailing out of Cyprus, originally from Turkey, mm -hmm. that was carrying, this goes the legend, that was carrying relief for the troubled, hum uh, the troubled people of Gaza. This is the Israeli-Palestinian uh, dispute along the Egyptian border, prior to Egypt being clarified as, a, as an ally of Israel. This is the tension along the Israeli-Egyptian border. Mm -hmm. That happened while I'm on the air. So I was, I mean, you know, I don't have news reports, just headlines. You know, there's been this operation, maybe there's one dead, unknown, fog of war. Right. Because I had a correspondent I could go to, a longtime colleague whom I trusted, and who was in constant contact with theater, with Israel, even though it's now, you know, 5, 6 a.m. in the morning, Israel time, the information is good. I was able to go to, his name is Malcolm Holine, and he's very well uh, thought of in uh, Jerusalem circles for the government. So I was able to go to him, and he gave a briefing to my audience. I don't like doing that because, as I've learned over the years, the fog of war means the first three reports are wrong, right. always wrong. And that's okay. 
They're trying to get it right. They're describing an elephant, and they're blind. But this is the bane of cable news in a nutshell. Right. Something happens on cable news, and two people pop up on air, and they're wildly speculating about something that's going on. They don't know exactly what's happening. Right. And I don't like that. It's just that because this was a breaking news story, and I had somebody to go to, mm -hmm. and I knew that he'd been talking to Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Now, what we were very careful to do is, this is all we have. This is what Jerusalem has. It's, it's, it's morning time. Mm -hmm. There will be a, cho a change here. The story will change. So that is how I cover breaking news, to make sure we've had some nuclear, we've had several nuclear tests, the fifth and sixth, I think, in North Korea while I was on air, because it's their morning time. Right. Uh, always, I remind the audience, wrong, wrong, wrong. First three reports are wrong. Wait, wait, wait. Do not look to make assumptions here. You cannot know. And over the years, what I've learned, Bill, is that we're still figuring out things that happened 15, 17, 100 years ago. We just, you, you cannot know ahead of time. You just say, this is the data we have now. These are the headlines. This is the opinion of, and then you name the distinguished personage, and then you back off. Right. So, John, I bought a car recently. And my car has a wonderful little device in it. If you look in the middle console, you can plug your phone into a USB port or UBS port, and that connects you into the car's entertainment system, and you can listen to podcasts as you drive along. And I drove recently from here in the Bay Area to Nevada, about a four-and-a-half, five-hour drive. I listened to podcasts start to finish. What this tells me, John, is maybe radio's future is in trouble. The people can listen to podcasts and can stream music and stream information constantly. What do you think the future of AM radio is? How I regard my show, <clears throat> because of the format, because I do interviews and segments are beginning, middle, and end, mm -hmm. uh, I regard my radio show as a production studio for the podcast. Right. That's the way it is. The podcast, the only mistake you make in podcasting is not to go big enough. Mm -hmm. It's a global phenomenon. Uh, you cannot presume who is listening, why, is li why they're listening, and when they're listening. You put your podcast up, and it takes days, weeks, years before somebody listens to it, and it's fresh to them. They go back over it. Uh, radio, uh, live radio broadcasting has another feel, but remember the time of that it's called day part. The day part I exist in mm -hmm. is not supposed to be breaking news, 9 o'clock at night, East Coast time. Right. Uh, news cycle's over. Washington's at the Distinguished Eating Club, whatever they call them these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, the news cycle will begin again at about 4 or 5 in the morning from Bloomberg's headlines. Right. So I have a, I, I'm in a day part that is guaranteed for reflection. And therefore, the podcast is simple. It's, it's most alarming to me uh, when I have a news report and I have to believe that it's going to be better in the morning. What do I do with it? Uh, the State of the Union can be like that, or the special, uh, special remarks by the president. Over the years, Bill, you've often come on with me following those events, and you take your notes. You've got a column to write. We're all, we're all trying to figure out what the metaphors are going to be. Right. We're doing the same thing Bloomberg and The Times and Reuters are doing. Exactly the same thing. We're searching for metaphors. We're searching for praises. We're searching for a way to say it in the first paragraph. That makes me a little anxious because by the next morning, by the podcast time, mm -hmm. it's going to be dated. On the other hand, something very good has happened for you and that you want to do thoughtful radio and what podcasting allows you to do is now people are not at the mercy of having to find John Bachelor from 8 p.m. to 12 p.m. at night. People can find you 24-7 thanks to podcasts. 
That's so correct. That would seem to me just to be a wonderful benefit. Same for thing for Area 45. That's what's so lovely about it. Yes, thank you. Uh, when you came to Area 45, it was a natural. Uh, the podcasting, I started podcasting back in, oh, I guess that my first, because the technology's changed. We were podcasting before the iPhone, but the iPhone transformed pi podcasting. It means you carry with you, and Android works just the same way. I'm right. just familiar with the iPhone now. You carry with you uh, anytime, anywhere, the information you want to hear. Right. Uh, and that works for audible.com as well. I, I've become addicted to books. I try to force myself to listen to a new one because I like the old favorites, you know, always, right. always ready to listen to FDR 1911 one more time. Mm -hmm. uh, it's the same for podcasting. Because it's always with you, you have freedom. And I invariably now hear from people who listen to me on their commute in the morning. They do not stay up, even though they're, they can do that. Here in San Francisco or in Boston, they can do that. But they count on the fact that they're going to load the program the next morning. And they complain that I haven't loaded the podcast, the segment they want to hear. Right. Well, I, I turn to my staff, Huey, Dewey, and Louie, and I say, boys, <laughs> we're going to have to do better. But there's just, you know, you do it in time. Exactly. When you first started this venture, John, it was The Bachelor and Alexander shows. Yes, it was. Paul Alexander. You don't have a co-host right now, but over the years you've had what we would call, I guess, sidekicks, nightly sidekicks, one of whom is Larry Kudlow. Tell me about your friend Larry. Larry came to me in 2004. He, had, he was a very successful broadcaster on television at the time, CNBC, right. yes. And uh, he was curious, interested in radio because I, my memory is dim on these things. Uh, you know, this is Larry Kudlow, director of the National Economic Council, so I don't want to speak like, you know, early days. I knew him when, mm -hmm. but Larry was interested in radio. I saw right away he was generally curious about the format, generally curious. Right. Uh, so every Tuesday he would come into my studio at WABC and we'd do an hour of broadcasting, which is a lot for him because he'd just gotten off air. And television, television doesn't take as much time as radio, but it's much more demanding. That is, the pressure is intense, it's unknown. It's a very strange world compared to radio. Right. Uh, and I thought it was very generous of him over the years. And then we just kept that format through all the changes at CNBC, through all the changes in the administrations, through all the changes in my show. Uh, and uh, he was with me again because I started the, the present iteration, I guess in 2009, 2009 with me through the recession and the rebuild. And uh, Larry got his own show on WABC, I guess, early, 2004, on Saturdays. Very successful show. Right. And then what he decided to do was move away from the talk show format of taking calls, because people like to talk to Larry. He's very agreeable and has lots of information from CNBC. And he moved into what Larry described to me as the John Batchelor show, mm -hmm. which is that he would have guests. Right. And that was that's the show that he suspended, I guess, in couple years ago. So the Trump administration comes in, the president is elected, everybody's in vaguely surprised. <laughs> and so Larry's one of them, I'm one of them. You know, we, vaguely surprised. Vaguely surprised, yes. <laughs> vaguely surprised. I think the candidate was vaguely surprised. We were all surprised that yes. night. Uh, so it became clear that Larry and Steve Moore and Art Laffer and Steve Forbes, who had been with the candidate Trump in 2015, 2016, especially right before the, the Detroit uh, Economic uh, Council speech that the president 
pres the candidate Trump had made about tax cuts. They'd been with him for all that time and briefed him on how tax cuts are going to help the economy. It's quite arcane unless you're an economist, but in any event, it became clear that all four of them were eligible for the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. And I talked to Larry about it week to week, and Larry was interested in just one job. He said, I only want one job. And I, I thought, well, okay. He said, I don't want these other jobs. I want one job. And that was director of the National Economic Council. That's the job he wanted. But at the time, it had someone else in it, a Goldman Sachs banker who had another vision and um, it, through 2017. However, Larry and his colleagues kept the president informed about this speech that you can go see at the Detroit Economic Council. I believe it was in early 16 or late 15. I don't remember. It all moves together. So skipping a lot of toing and froing, Larry was invited to become the director of the National Economic Council. And at first, Larry and I thought, well, I thought, I always think when people go in, because you know how many people I've lost to the administration. You, right. Monica Crowley, our dear friend, is now lost. I mean, you can't, it, to, the hoops you have to go through to talk to somebody in the administration, yes. uh, as an amateur broadcaster, it's not worth it. Wait till they come out. Then, then they'll talk forever. Um, so Larry and I at first thought he could talk every week, but it's really too much. And also what happened is that the White House would always come up with a reason for him not to say anything. And of course, that's not broadcasting. You know, exactly. I, I can't do this, I can't do that. You know, when you talk to official Washington, that there's a long list of what they don't want to be asked about. Right. And then invariably, there's, they have this requirement to have somebody from the communications department on the phone with you, which is very eerie. That extends even to NASA. They have to ask permission. So wait till they're, wait till they're former. Exactly. How's Larry's health? Uh, Larry is very good. Uh, I, I, now and again, I ask him, uh, I did initially, but he's so vigorous, it's not worth asking right now. Mm -hmm. You know, I've had a health event, and he's my, very... That was my next question. We'll yes. do that in a moment. <laughs> yes. And so Larry is correspondingly <coughs> solicitous of my health. Right. So we're, we're two veterans uh, talking to each other about how healthy we are and how we're recovering. Let's talk about your health. How are you enjoying being on the receiving end of this, by the way? Uh... Uh, it's easy for me. You know that. I, we're two hosts here. <laughs> so hosts know how to hand off. We know what segues are. Well, curious because some people like to drive and some people like to be in the passenger seat and somebody who would like to drive hate being in the passenger seat. So, Oh, no, I don't mind. I hope you're enjoying the ride today. I, 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 I know not to filibuster, but I can. Good. Yes. So your health, your voice sounds very good. And not uh, too long this was an issue. Uh, right, a year ago. A year ago I was... Uh, the recipient of the best health care system on the planet, Let's probably in the solar system. Describe, yes. describe the diagnosis. Right. Uh, I had a, an, a swollen gland in my neck, what you get when you have the flu. Mm -hmm. And uh, over the course of a year, we examined it, eye, ear, throat, including biopsy, pin biopsy or a scan, and nothing came up other than the fact that it was swollen, and then it receded, and then it swelled again. Uh, the spring, uh, the summer, and the fall of 18 went, and we decided, I decided I wanted to take it out since it was just not behaving. It was a swollen gland, mm -hmm. not profound. However, the diagnosis came back that it was cancerous on October 1st, is my memory, of 2018. Now, I learned a great deal about it. it it's the papilloma, human papillomavirus 
is 99% of the population. It's vaguely related to warts, but in any event, everybody has the virus. In a small percentage of us, and I'm probably speaking to that small percentage right now, you cannot know. It, it, it never, it becomes dormant and comes back as, in males, cancer of the tongue. Mm -hmm. it, you cannot predict it. You don't know it's there. It's in everybody, so it comes back. And increasingly, the eye, ear, nose, and throat uh, surgeons and teams are seeing this more than uh, smoking. I think Michael Douglas went through something like yes, this, too. Yes, they're yeah. prominent. I, I was told Jamie Dimon of, of mm -hmm. uh, J.P. Morgan went through it as well. Right. You cannot know it's coming. Uh, the symptoms are unreadable before, although that swollen gland is mm -hmm. the symptom that right. was. But even then, that's not the source of the cancer. Mm -hmm. That's a symptom. Your body is responding to the cancer, right. and it's always in the same place. How do the doctors treat the cancer? Right. <clears throat> well, of course, you've got a talk show host who talks uh, four hours a night, so what else would you do? You're going to cut his tongue out. Right. <laughs> yes. So they told me that. I figure, hey, this is an easy decision. We're going one way. Mm -hmm. Right. It's right. Not, you don't struggle over it. You say, okay, fine. Mm -hmm. And they, this is Sloan Kettering in New York. And they were very clear to me that this has a very good recovery rate. And uh, we're very successful, and we have much better tools than we did 10, 20 years ago. So I listened to them. And for the first time, when you're dropped into a desert, you learn how to survive without water. Mm -hmm. When you're dropped into cancer, you learn how to survive. That's what you learn. You learn a great deal about the American healthcare system, which I remind everybody is superb. Yes, it's expensive. And the reason is it's superb. Here's the chronology. October 1st, we get the diagnosis from the lab that it is cancer. They don't know where it is, but they can assume they know where it is. On November 2nd, I was on the, surge, uh, I was on the operating table. One month to do all that testing, all that, all that uh, discovery, all that preparation with their, their heavy schedules anyway, because other people are making demands on their time and the hospital is processing. Now, <clears throat> Bill, let's do policy here. Where else can you find that? I mean, I'm not special. I didn't go to the head of the line. Right. Uh, and I have insurance, but it's not extraordinarily different from other people's insurance. It's SAG-AFTRA because I'm a member of a union. So bang, 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 Sloan Kettering on the operating table, and then becomes the recovery. Mm -hmm. And here I am today, having gone through surgery and then radiation, which was much more challenging than right. the surgery, and then learning to, to talk again. And you're good to say that I've recovered. I hear the difference. I can hear the difference. Yes. And it's only a year since the discovery and three years minimum for recovering because you've got to learn to talk again. Right. Your voice sounds as it did 10 years ago, but there was a period a few months ago where the voice was clearly struggling. Did you start to doubt that you had a future in radio at that point? No. No, no I, I was told it was acceptable. Everyone was very generous. I mean, maybe they were too generous. Mm -hmm. But I kept working, and the physicians told me, you can do this. Actually, they were, they were fun about it. They said, uh, you know, we've never had an opera singer. I go, okay. They're telling me something here. So we're not quite sure you know, where this is going. Everyone's different. I talked to a colleague of yours here at Hoover, Bruce Thornton, who's gone through a similar challenge. And Bruce and I talk now and again. We compare notes. Right. Everyone has responds to this particular cancer uh, differently. And 
you recover differently because it has to do with your voice box, uh, mucus, your ability to swallow, eat. You lose sensitivity in part of your mouth because of the surgery. Everything's different. And Bruce and I joke that we're talking to really wonderful people who are very patient with us, but they've never had it. So all they can do is give you anecdotes from people like yourself right. about what it's like. And you go, well, that's cool. But so when Bruce and I talk, we're sharing anecdotes. He says, I, I can do this. And I go, well, I can't do that, but I can do this. And it's, uh, it's, it's, it's surprisingly supportive. Mm -hmm. Now, another profound thing I learned, and this has to do with policy as well. Cancer is not a killer. It was when we were growing up. It's no longer a killer. It's not the end. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's... There are too many different kinds of cancer, but I do a lot of reporting now because biotechs <coughs> come to me to put their product on air mm -hmm. uh, to the investor class. There are too many different kinds of cancer to say we've beaten cancer, but it's, surprisingly, it's surprising how many kinds of cancer now have successful protocols right. and extend life. And now the new... The new T cells are coming in, which are changing again the ability to adjust to cancer. So I tell the younger people in my, on my staff, by the time you're my age, darling, this might be just tuberculosis. That might be what we're dealing with here, part of, part of life cycle. I've learned that, and I've learned that the reason we're so good, the reason this is happening so quickly, and radiation is the same story. 10, 15 years ago, the radiation I had to have afterwards, it's, it's it's, it's prescriptive radiation because they can't find any cancer. They just want to make sure they would radiate where it could be. Uh, would have destroyed my jaw or would have severely limited my ability to recover. Right. The radiation itself, the radiation machines have improved so much that I do not have that threat to my bones. Um, all of that is a product of money and research and incentive and production, all of that. That's when, when certain candidates castigate big pharma or big medicine, and when certain candidates talk about Medicare for all and limiting what people can charge for this or that procedure, they're not thinking through what it is to be on the receiving end of that healthcare system. Healthcare, John, is obviously going to be a part of the uh, election next year. Uh, Senator Warren last year, uh, just last week, announcing uh, the details for how she'll pay for Medicare for All. Um, let's wrap up the podcast by just talking briefly about how you want to approach the, the presidential election. Uh, as I see it, three conversations that will be going on. <clears throat> One is socialism versus free market capitalism. And a lot of Hoover fellows here are already fascinated by this, especially those who teach young students at Stanford who seem quite enamored with socialism. The second conversation, John, would be Trump populism. Is it here to stay? Is it just a one-off of Donald Trump? Or is this the preview of coming attractions for Republican candidates down the road? And then the third conversation, John, is America's standing in the world. Hmm. Where we're going to be as a foreign, poly, foreign power, how we exert our power, our influence over world markets. Do we continue with the Trump pattern? Does a Democrat come in and change course? Discuss a bit how you want to approach these conversations. Socialism, populism, exceptionalism. Yes. How's that? Okay, those three. I'll start with socialism. I have Richard Epstein, <laughs> so I just, I just, is Richard Epstein's wonderful. Richard, let's talk about socialism. Boom, we're off to the races. Once you get him to come out of his shell. <laughs> <laughs> so socialism is a joy also because the same debate that appears we're having, although it's all very polite, 
is the debate that was ha that happened a hundred years ago, after the Bolshevik Revolution. Yes. As socialism became a popular term of art for the salons of London, of Washington, of right. New York, and that young people in America were attracted to the idea of socialism until and if, uh, with Lenin's death, Stalin came up with the idea of socialism in one country, and then you had this debate inside right. the socialists. All wonderful stuff, because we're reviewing all of that. Mm -hmm. And this time, unlike 100 years ago, we have historical precedent. Right. Sort of like mumbling, you know, it didn't work out very well. Exactly. And the idea of uh, we pretend to pay you and you pretend to work is not, a, is not the way America wants to go for GDP. Right. Socialism also these days involves um, New Green Deal. And the New Green Deal, on the face of it, is science fiction. And that makes it a joy to discuss. Yes. When you get into the numbers, it becomes, <clears throat> well, you, you move into a, a terrain that is entirely speculative. The but gentleman you're about to interview, Dr. Michael Boskin, <coughs> has written brilliant pieces <coughs> on the Green New Deal and the fallacy of it. So be sure, yes, yes. Be sure to push his All right, on populism. It. Yes, populism. Let's go to that. Populism is suspect because it has great momentum. And it comes and goes through history, through countries, through regions, through time periods. It's always available, and it can be a transforming event. At the same time, it can lead to trouble ahead in the hands of um, kleptocrats or monocrats or opportunists. So it's, it's a tool. It's a tool, but it, it can be a dangerous tool. Right. Um, the one that I like is exceptionalism. I love that one. <clears throat> and we talk about it a lot because that's the way to talk about American history. Mm -hmm. you, get the, you get the landscape big enough. America is a complete accident. I mean, it's like we're in an alternative universe that started somewhere in the 17th century. This should not exist. Yes. No one would have said, uh, I feel like the beginning of War of the Worlds. No one could know, okay? <laughs> no, one, no one would have said sitting there in Elizabethan England, the beginning of the 17th century. Oh, by the way, do you know the future's in New York? You go, what? Yeah, no problem. But, you know, f four centuries from now, New York City's going to be the center of the world. They would have thought you were writing, what? Uh, yeah, heresy. They would not have been able to relate to it. So I love exceptionalism because it allows us to review the last 400 years from that Elizabethan drawing room and William Shakespeare and their concerns about legitimacy and uh, regicide. The same concerns we have today. Yes. Right. Okay, fine. Early, early uh, Guy Fawkes Day coming up, Bill, right? That's, that's legitimacy. That's regicide. That's where we live today. And we live out of their tradition, uh, early Elizabethan tradition of uh, man's home is his castle. That's theirs. We're still dealing with it. Much of our Supreme Court over these last years deals with that assumption. Well, that's American exceptionalism. We don't exist except we do. No one would make us up in a script, uh, in a script pitching session. They say, that's impossible. You can't take an, uh, a land of uh, aborigines uh, ripped by pandemics for centuries and throw in every possible mix of European uh, uh, wastrels and come up with a GDP that outpaces the earth in four centuries. Right. You're ridiculous. Be practical. So those three things, socialism, populism, exceptionalism, 
allow me in the course of the show with my correspondence to review the last hundred years, the next hundred years, and the last 400 years. Final question, John Batchelor, <coughs> the man or woman listening to this podcast who thinks, I'm going to do what John Batchelor does for a living. How does one become John Batchelor? Ah, uh, yes. Um, do I go to Princeton? <coughs> do I write books? Do I kind of end up in radio accidentally? Or is there a plan? Uh, Bill, I think we have similar paths here, and here's why. You get to this microphone after trying everything else, after having succeeded and failed at other parts of your life, after having regrets and doubts and missed opportunities. That's what brings you to the microphone. Here's what, here's what the microphone does that television cannot do, and it does it for both of us as we talk. The, the audience can hear that we've been talking a long time. The audience can hear that we're both pros, but even more important, the audience can hear when we believe something is true. The audience can hear when we're not sure. And the audience can hear very clearly when something is not accurate. They can hear it. You can't do that with television. Uh, the eye fools you. Mm -hmm. You watch the colors. You watch the movements. But in the radio, or in this particular, we're a digital platform. That's what we are. In the radio, or what we're doing now, the, the podcast, they can hear sincerity, they hear excitement, and here's what they learn from us, Bill. And uh, I do it. They hear what we're excited about. If we really like something, they hear it, and they go, I don't know anything <laughs> about that, but Bill Whalen and John Batchelor are excited about it, so the next time it comes up, I'm going to pay attention. That's what they hear. Very good. John Batchelor, I wish you continued good health and continued success with all your endeavors. Mr. Whalen, same to you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Area 45, a Hoover Institution podcast on the policy avenues available to the 45th President of the United States. And in this podcast, a radio host who does his best to make sense of this presidency and its impact on both the national and world stages. If you've been enjoying Area 45, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. And if you wouldn't mind, please spread the word, get your friends to have a listen. By the way, we're not the only Hoover podcast available to you. There's Econ Talk, the classicist with the great Victor Davis Hanson, the libertarian with the redoubtable Richard Epstein. We also cover it fellow speeches in a podcast you can easily download. <clears throat> the Hoover Institution is online at www.hoover.org. While you're there, do yourself a favor and sign up for Hoover's Daily Report, which delivers the best work of my Hoover colleagues to your inbox every weekday. The Hoover Institution has Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter feeds. Our Twitter handle is at Hoover Inst. It says at Hoover I-N-S-T. John Batchelor also inhabits the realm called Twitter. His Twitter handle is at Bachelor Show. That is Bachelor spelled B-A-T-C-H-E-L-O-R, at Bachelor Show. And you can go to johnbachelorshow.com to see where you can tune in and find the podcast. It's available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and a whole bunch of other hosts. John, enjoy your time here at Hoover. I know you've got a lot of fellows lined up, so enjoy the conversations. Great to have you back on campus. Thank you, Bill. For the Hoover Institution, this is Bill Whalen. We'll be back soon with another installment of Area 45. Until then, take care. Thanks for listening. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.